Good morning, everybody. It is good to see you all. We are in week two of our series, Storyteller, where we are looking at some of the stories that Jesus told. And he was the master storyteller because he didn't just tell stories just for the fun of it. He tells stories and he would weave in all these different elements that were meant to help his audience learn something. And uh, they were called parables. And so last week, Pastor Corey started us off looking at a parable. Today, we're going to be looking at another one. And we're going to be looking at one of the most famous parables uh, in the Bible. And it's all about what it means to be a neighbor. And uh, so we're going to be looking in this, at this parable. And as I've been thinking about this parable this week, what it means to be a neighbor, there's a specific movie that's kept coming to my mind where being a neighbor is kind of front and center. All right, I know it's summertime, but I keep thinking about this Christmas movie. It's Christmas with the Cranks. Has anyone ever seen that movie before? All right, if you've seen it, you know that being a neighbor and like living in a neighborhood is kind of front and center in this movie. Now, if you haven't seen it, uh, spoiler alert, I'll tell you what happens. So the Cranks decide, hey, we're going to go on a cruise for Christmas. We're going to skip Christmas altogether. No tree, no lights, no Christmas Eve party, nothing. And their neighbors, if you've seen the movie, you know, they just go nuts. They cannot fathom the fact that their neighbors would skip Christmas, that they wouldn't help them in their yearly, like, light display contest. Like, they just go nuts. They don't put Frosty up on the roof, and they're, like, threatening them. It's crazy. So the whole movie, the cranks are getting ready for this cruise, and then Christmas Eve comes, and they're packing, and they're getting ready to go, and they get a phone call from their daughter saying, hey, mom and dad, I'm coming home for Christmas with my fiance. I'm so excited for the Christmas Eve party you always put on. I'm so excited to be with you. And the cranks are like, oh, snap. What do we do? We haven't been planning for Christmas. And so they try to throw together a Christmas for their daughter, but it's failing. And then the neighbors who have been like on them the whole time, they decide, you know what? We see that they're struggling. They've been kind of jerks. It's okay. We're going to step in. We're going to help them out. And so the movie ends with this just... You know, this picturesque, this magical Christmas Eve where the neighborhood has come together to help the cranks pull together a magical Christmas Eve so their daughter never knows that they were planning to skip Christmas. And as you watch this movie, as I've watched it and I've, I've thought about it, I'm like, you know what, were these neighbors good neighbors or bad neighbors? Like, they're, they're just constantly showing up being like, you're being bad for skipping Christmas. And then, but at the end, they're like, we love you. We'll, we'll help you pull off amazing Christmas Eve. And so you kind of walk away wondering, you know, if I would live next door to the cranks, what would I have done? Would I have helped them out in their time of need? Would I just thought they were crazy for skipping Christmas? I don't know. Today's parable, though, is going to force us to ask similar questions. What kind of neighbor am I? Am I the kind of neighbor that shows up and helps? Am I the kind of neighbor that points the finger and says, look at them, they're crazy? Like, what kind of neighbor am I? And so as we dive into this parable, uh, that's where we're headed. What kind of neighbor are we? So we're going to go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 25. And feel free to open up your Bibles, open up your phone, the follow along. There's a QR code on the back of these. If you want to scan that, it'll pull up all the passages as well as uh, the points for today. But Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Now this first section is kind of setting up uh, the story. So we're not into the story yet, but this is kind of laying the, the scene for why Jesus is going to tell this story. And this is what it says. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, 
what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. All right, so this expert of the law, some guy comes up to Jesus and he's talking to Jesus. He says he wants to test Jesus. So this guy, right off the bat, I don't think his motives are really like good. He wants to test Jesus. And we see this throughout the Gospels, different people coming up to try to test Jesus, whether they want to uh, get Jesus to say something and kind of be like, I got you. Like I asked you such a hard question, kind of trap him in his words. Maybe he wants to impress Jesus. We, we don't know exactly, but his motives aren't necessarily the best. He's coming up. He's wanting to test Jesus. And as an expert in the law, he would have known his stuff. I'm sure there's some of us in here who've memorized big portions of scripture. Back then, these people, the Jewish people, especially if you were an expert in the law or a rabbi or a priest, like they would have likely memorized the entire Old Testament. They would have known it as like the back of their hand. Like this guy really is an expert in the Old Testament law. Specifically, it says the law of Moses, kind of the first five books of the Bible. And so this guy, he knows his stuff. He's coming up to to Jesus, asking him what he should do to inherit eternal life. And that, is that a good question? Just, Just think about that. Is that a good question? I think it's a great question. That's kind of the million dollar question that people have been asking, whether you're a Christian or not, kind of for forever. Like, what can I do basically to be saved? Like, I recognize there's something wrong in this world. How can I have eternal life? Like, what can I do? It's a great question. Now, I love Jesus's response. You know, this guy asked him, hey, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus do? He asks his own question. This guy comes up trying to test Jesus, and Jesus, right like that, starts testing him. And he says, hey, what does it say in the law of Moses? And this guy, he quotes uh, from the law of Moses. He actually quotes from two different passages. It says Deuteronomy, or the first part is from Deuteronomy 6, 5, the part that says, uh, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind. The second part is from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of found in the midst of all these kind of laws about what it looks like to treat people in a neighborly, loving way. And so this expert in the law, he knows the law, and as he's examining it, these are the things that stand out to him from what the Old Testament law says. I got to love God, and I got to love my neighbor. Did he pass Jesus' test? Oh yeah, Jesus says, right, you've, like, you're correct, you've done it. And then he says, go do this and you will live. Now, this expert in the law, he knows the right answer, he answers correctly, and Jesus tells him to go do this. Basically, go love God and love other people and you will have eternal life. Before we get into the story, we need to just pause here and think, what, is, what does this mean? Because it would be really easy to read this and to walk away saying, hey, I know how I can be saved. I just got to love God and I got to love people. If I'm good enough at just loving people and loving God, then I'll earn my salvation. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Because if you examine this passage compared to the rest of Scripture, does the Bible teach we can earn our salvation by, by what we do? Does the Bible teach, hey, if you're good enough, if you love enough, you will get eternal life? 
I don't think it teaches that. And we're going to look at a couple passages. One, Ephesians chapter 2 says this. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. And so the Apostle Paul who wrote this, he's very clear. Like We're, we're saved by God's grace. When you, when you believe in him, when you put your faith in him, it's not a reward for how good a loving neighbor you are. You can't earn it. Now, this Ephesians chapter 2 would have been written after Jesus had died, rose again, and gone to heaven. What about the Old Testament? What does the Old Testament teach? Because it would be easy to say, well, maybe things changed after, after Jesus died and rose again. Maybe beforehand people were saved by how good they were. And uh, if we go back to the Old Testament, to a guy named Abraham, we'll see this in Genesis chapter 15. This verse comes right after God has has talked to Abraham and he's told him, hey, you're going to be the father of a great nation. He takes him outside. He says, look at the stars. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. And then it says, and Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. It doesn't say, whoa, Abram, you are good. You're a good guy. You, You love your family enough. You love people enough. You've earned my salvation. Here you go. No, he just believes in God. He puts his faith in what God says and in God's promises. And that's what is counted to him as righteousness or right standing before God. And that might seem like, oh yeah, there's one verse there. But this verse is so powerful that when we go back to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up on this passage and says, look at what it says. We'll go to the book of Romans. Romans 4 says this. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. And this is Apostle Paul talking. He was a Jew. He said, what did he discover about being made right with God or being put into right standing with God? He says, if his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they've earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sins. So it's clear when we look at the rest of scripture, that salvation only comes by God's grace to us. When we put our faith in him and we believe in him. It's not based on how good of a neighbor we are or how loving we are or how good, because we can't earn it. We can't be good enough. That's why Jesus had to come live the perfect life, die the death we deserve, and then raise again, conquering the power of sin and death in our lives. I want to just lay this foundation because it would be easy to go into this passage, into this story, thinking, you know what? If I love enough, God will give me the salvation I deserve. That's a transactional way to look at the gospel. That's a transactional way to have a relationship with God. But that's not the way our relationship with God works. He's called our father. We're his child. He gives us salvation out of the love of his heart when we receive him as our father. It's totally, totally different. So when Jesus says, hey, go and do this, when he's talking about uh, the way you can get eternal life is by loving God and loving others, what what does Jesus mean here? What does this passage mean? I think what is happening here is Jesus isn't answering the expert in the law Uh, with like a direct answer. Because the direct answer would be, hey, recognize you're a sinner. Put your faith in God. Believe in him. He will save you by his grace. Then go and love 
me and love other people. No, what I think Jesus is doing is he's describing the type of person who has already received eternal life. The type of person who's put their faith in God. They're the type of person who says, you know what? The only response I can do is love God and love love other people. Because think about this. When we recognize God as the creator of the universe, and we recognize ourselves as the creature, and then we recognize he's holy and we're sinful, and there's nothing we can do to get there, but then he stepped down and he loved us and gave us his grace and mercy and salvation and forgiveness. The only real response to that amazing grace is to say, I, I love you. And because you love me, I'm going to love other people too. So the law, the Old Testament law, was meant to get people ultimately to this idea of, I need to love God and love other people. And it was trying to help show people back then how they could do that. And so Jesus, rather than answering the man directly, he wants him to see, you know what, this is the type of person you should be if you've already recognized who I am. And so those who have eternal life should have a life marked by love. This is the foundation before we even get into the story. Those who have eternal life, those who are safe, should be marked by love. You know, we love not to earn salvation, but because, we are loving, because our loving God has given us salvation. You know, we love not to earn it, but because our loving God has given us salvation. And so let's pause. What's your operating system when it comes to the way you view salvation? Or what's your operating system when it comes to the way you interact with the God of the universe? Is it transactional, saying, God, I did this for you, I did that for you, I was good over here, yeah, I I did that, but look at all that I did over here, you should give me this because I'm good enough. Or is it, God, I'm not good enough, but you're good enough, and I, I can't earn it, but you give it, and so I believe that. Thank you, I love you, and I love others. It changes everything. Because in the first, the first one, our motivation to love our neighbor is based on me getting something. The second one is based on, I've already been given this. I don't need to love people to get what I want. I love them just because I can love them. It's a very different mindset. It might seem subtle, but it's a huge shift when you really think about it and apply it to your life. So this is where Jesus starts with this guy. It's like, hey, these are the type of people who have eternal life. They're people who love. Their life is marked by love. The other thing I want us to see from this right away is those who are saved don't just know the right answers. They seek to live them out. They seek to live them out. And you're going to see why that's important in just a second. Because here we have this guy, this expert in the law. Does he know the right answers? Yeah, he does. Jesus says, you're right, or you're correct. He knows exactly the right thing to say. But is he seeking to actually live them out? Well, based on his response that we're going to see in just a second, I would think he doesn't seek to live it out. Because this is how he responds to what Jesus says, moving on in the passage. It says, the man wanted to justify his actions. Remember, he went to test Jesus. Jesus flips the table and he starts testing him. So he wants to justify himself, like justify why he's even gotten into this conversation with Jesus in the first place. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's a 
decent question, I think. He wants to know, Jesus, if I'm supposed to love God and love other people, love my neighbors, what constitutes a neighbor? Like, where's the limit? Like, when I look at someone, is that person my neighbor? Is it the person I live next to? Like, what, what does that even mean? And this question spins Jesus not into a direct answer again. Jesus is the master of giving indirect answers that make you think. It's awesome. But he gives this, he spins him off into this story. And this is what it says. Verse 30. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and left him half dead beside the road. All right, we'll pause there. This is the setup. This is the opening scene of the story. Every good story has kind of that opening scene. And so there's this Jewish man, he's walking down the road, and he gets beaten. And he says he's, goes, he's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the expert of the law. Can you do that with me? Like, let's pretend you are that guy. You are a Jewish man living 2,000 years ago in the nation of Israel. You, you would know exactly what Jesus is talking about here. All right? So the road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, it says down. That's an important detail. Like, that's a, a legitimate thing. In Israel, the, the Jerusalem and Jericho are about 17 miles apart. But uh, they, the, the height is, is drastic, like so different. Uh, Jer- Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is about 800 feet below sea level. All right, so there's this huge contrast in the land. Jerusalem is up in the hills and the mountains, and then you go down to Jericho, and it's one of the lowest places on earth. And so whenever you traveled from Jerusalem, you always traveled down from Jerusalem. Or if you went to Jerusalem, you traveled up to it. And so you're this expert of the law. You would have pictured this scene perfectly. You'd be like, oh yeah, I know that road. That road through all those hills. You know, all that, that, that distance where you're just traveling down. It's rocky. It's rough. There have been tons of places for bandits to hide and to rob someone. This is like, oh yeah, I know someone who just got mugged last week on that road. Like you would have known this, this thing. It's a common, a common thing that would have happened. But they strip this man down, they beat him, and they leave him for dead. Jesus continues with the story, verse 31. It says, By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. And we'll pause right there. So again, you're this expert in the law. Stay in his shoes. You would have known exactly who Jesus is talking about here. A priest or a temple assistant or some translations say a Levite. Uh, Both of those people would be people you as the expert in the law would have respected deeply. A priest would have worked in the temple performing sacrifices and doing other things like ministry things in and around the temple. The temple assistant or the Levites would have have helped the priest in, in, in their work. And so these, as an expert in the law, these are like, these are, these are good guys. These are the types of people that you look up to, that you respect. They're kind of the top of the social class. Like, this is good. But in the story, they're passing by this person who's been beaten and robbed. Now, you as the expert in the law, I don't know how you would have felt 2,000 years ago. Maybe part of you would have been like, oh, maybe they should have stopped because that's a Jewish man. They should have stopped and helped him. Or maybe you would have been like, you know what? They're justified in passing by. 
because maybe they don't want to get robbed. They see this man lying there, presumably dead. They think, you know what? The bandits could still be here. I got to keep going. Or maybe, um, see, a priest and a, a temple worker, they weren't allowed to touch a dead body. There were laws in the Old Testament where if they did that, they would become what's called ceremonially unclean. Now, that doesn't mean if they touched a dead body, they necessarily sin, but there's all these different ceremonial rituals where when, when God's people went into the temple or the tabernacle, they were supposed to be ceremonially pure. It was basically them going in recognizing, I am a sinful being living in a sinful world. I'm corrupted, and I'm going into the God's holy presence. So God gave them all of these reminders to help them remember who they were and who God was. And so it wasn't necessarily sinful that they touched the dead body, but if they became ceremonially unclean and then entered God's presence, that was sinful, that was wrong. And so what they would have to do if they touched a dead body, they would have to go through these different rituals and and purification things. So maybe if you're the expert in the law, you're thinking, you know what? That priest and that temple worker, they shouldn't help this guy because then they'd become ceremonially unclean. They couldn't perform their duties. It'd be such a big hassle. I don't know which side you would have been on 2,000 years ago as this expert in the law. But up until this point in the story, you would have been tracking with Jesus like 100%. You know that road down to Jericho. You know a priest. You know this temple worker. You're like, this is good. Then comes the next part of the story. And this is what it says. Then a despised Samaritan came along. You were all supposed to gasp right there, all right? Remember, you're the expert in the law. All right, let's try it again. Then a despised Samaritan came along. There we go. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Here, pause right there. At this point in the story, you as the expert in the law, this would have been scandalous. Because clearly, Jesus has made the hero of this story a Samaritan. Now, if you lived back then and you were this expert in the law, thinking about a Samaritan would have been, it would have boiled your blood. You would have hated this type of person. This was not a person that a Jewish person would have been around. Um, there's sh- accounts where Jewish people, instead of like walking through the land of Samaria, they would choose to go the long way around it just to avoid interacting with them. And there's a long history between Jews and Samaritans. There's some like ancestry that they have way back. Um, but they basically decided, you know what? We don't like each other. We hate you. We're not going to interact. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus is in a debate, and he's talking to some, some, this Jewish crowd, and the debate gets heated. Like, it gets so heated at the end that they try to pick up stones and, and kill Jesus with them. Like, that's how heated this debate gets. But before it escalates to that point, uh, they look at Jesus and they say, um, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Basically, they're saying, uh, you, like, you're such so bad, you're just like a Samaritan. In fact, you're, you're kind of demon-possessed too. Like, to, to, to be mean to Jesus, to be belittle him, they, they put being a Samaritan next to being demon-possessed. 
Like, that's what they would have thought about a Samaritan. All right? So, this story for you, if you're that expert in the law, it doesn't go the way you were anticipating. You're tracking with Jesus, you're tracking with Jesus, and then, oh my gosh, a Samaritan is the hero. It's the craziest twist in the world that Jesus could have done. And what does a Samaritan do? He has pity for this man. He has compassion in his heart for him. He goes to him and he helps him. And he doesn't just help him. He like pulls out all the stops. He does everything. He uses his own resources, olive oil and wine. He pours it on the the man's wounds. It would have been medicinal. It would have helped. He bandages him. He puts him on his own donkey. And remember, he's on this hostile road. There could have been bandits anywhere. They could have been waiting for him. He says, you know what? I'm going to wait here. I'm going to put this man on my donkey. He takes him to an inn. He takes care of him. He pays for his lodging. And he says, hey, if, if I return and he's still here, I'll pay for his bill. Like he does everything possible to help this man. And as Jesus wraps up the story, this is how the passage ends in verse 36 and 37. Jesus says, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Just think about this. You as the expert in the law, you know the law so well. And when you ask, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a story and the hero of the story is not someone you would have thought should be your neighbor. It's this dirty, rotten Samaritan who is the hero. And so this passage has this crazy twist. And it's all about this idea of what does it actually look like to love, to actually be a good neighbor. And so how does this story, though, apply to to us? You know, we've already seen from the opening interaction between Jesus and the expert of the law that God's people... When they're saved, their life should be characterized and marked by love. Love for God and love for other people. That's what the setup to the story tells us. But from this passage, from this story, we see this reality. That good neighbors, good neighbors love their neighbors. It's as simple as that. Good neighbors love their neighbors. God's people love the people around them. That's the simplest thing we can take from this. It's so simple. And for some of us, we've heard this story. I've heard this story a bazillion times growing up in the church. It's such a simple thing. The twist doesn't catch us off guard anymore. But this simple thing is profound because it's not always easy to do. We don't see it in our world very often. It's it's difficult. It's easy to say it's so much harder to do. The fact that if we're going to be good neighbors, we need to love our neighbors and God's people love the people around them. So for the rest of our time, I want us to just process how to become a good neighbor, how to become a good neighbor, a neighbor that actually loves their neighbors. And there's, there's three things I want to just draw out from this passage. The first one is this, to be a good neighbor, you must self-evaluate. Did you notice that Jesus he doesn't answer the man's question directly again. The man asks, who, who's my neighbor? Basically, where are my limits to who I should call my neighbor? Did Jesus ever tell him, oh yeah, that person is your neighbor, but that person's not your neighbor? Did he ever do that? No, instead of answering that question, 
Jesus tells him the story, and then he asks him, which one of these guys in the story was a neighbor? So rather than answering the question of who is my neighbor, he points an example to a person who is a good neighbor. And what I think Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to show him, hey, you're asking the wrong question. It's not about looking around and judging, saying, hey, they're kind of pretty good. I'll be a neighbor to them. And you know, they're kind of good, but they did that to me last week. Nah, I won't be a neighbor to them. Or, you know what? They're, they're just weird. Like, I'm just not going to be a neighbor to them because that would be too difficult. No, that's the wrong question. The right question is, am I a good neighbor? Not should I be neighborly to them, but am I being a good neighbor? He points the expert in the law rather than to, to the external judgment. He points him to internal reflection and evaluation. It's very, very easy to just live out here and to look around and say, you know what, uh, that person is kind of here in my mind and that person's kind of here and this person deserves this love and that person deserves this love. But that's not the game Jesus wants us to play. He wants us to rather look inside and say, am I the type of person who would love my neighbors? And so I have a question for you. Uh, what would it be like to move in next door to yourself? What would that be like? Some of us, I'm sure, have cr- stories about neighbors, and you're like, dude, I got a crazy neighbor story. And we could probably go around just topping each other, one after the other, of just those, those neighbors, you know, those crazy neighbors, those neighbors you're like, I hope they don't live next door to me. Are you that kind of neighbor? That when you moved in or when someone else moved in, they're like, oh, this is going to be rough. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Are you the kind of neighbor that when someone moves, they say, oh, I'm going to miss sharing a fence with that person. They were, they were awesome. What would it be like to live next door to yourself? The second thing, after we have self-evaluate, the second thing to be a good neighbor is this. You must look beyond your differences. The Samaritan, he chooses to love a Jewish man. He looks beyond the differences, differences that would have been hostile. He chooses to say, you know what? I'm going to put aside our theological differences because the Samaritans and the Jews had plenty of theological differences. I'm going to put aside our generations of like hate and hostility and I'm going to choose to meet your need and love you. Imagine if we were retelling the Good Samaritan story today and think about the people you would respect, um, the people in your life, and think about those people walking. Instead of helping the man, they, they go to the other side of the road like, I'm not helping this guy. And then picture that person or that type of person that's really hard to love and they become the hero of the story. They stop and they help this person who's so vastly different from them. I don't know what that person would be like for you. Maybe that person would uh, look different from you, be ethnically different from you. Maybe they'd be, have po- political views that are different from yours. Maybe they would have lifestyle uh, beliefs that are different from yours. Maybe they'd religiously be different from you. Um, I don't know what that person would be like for you. you know, maybe they root for your rival football team. I don't know. But Jesus tells this story, and he, he wants this expert in the law to see, you know what? 
It's not about creating limits and saying, I love this person because they're like me. It's no, I love this person because they need love. And it can be so easy for us to create these external boundaries. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, if you love someone differently than you, that means you 100% agree with their lifestyle. No. Jesus is saying, well, if you love that person, that means you're, going, you're, you're submitting to whatever uh, beliefs they have or whatever cultural norms they have. You know what? You, don't do that. No. We can still love somebody and still hold our convictions. What's bad is when we, we have all these convictions and they get in the way of us loving people. We can hold the truth about who God is and what we believe about what he says about uh, our, our ethics and how culture should be run and, and all these things, and we can still love people who are different from us. Those things can exist together. It's just sometimes we say, you know what, I can't love because they're not where I'm at. They don't believe this. They don't live like this. And Jesus says, that's not the point. To be a good neighbor, you've got to look past your differences. All right, the last one is this. last one is this. To be a good neighbor... You must put love into action. Have you ever played a game or a sport with someone who could just, they just, they talk the talk so big? Like before you play, they're just bragging like, oh yeah, I'm going to cream you. And they just, I've been practicing for this. And they just, they talk and talk and talk. And then you go and play and you just destroy them. Come on, that's a great feeling, right? (laughs) All right. That's such a great feeling because they talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. Now, let's think about it as believers. I've been a believer for a long time. I tend to know the right answers. I tend to know the right things to say. I know when I should say, oh, yeah, Jesus loves me. Oh, yeah, I need to love other people. Oh, yeah, God created all things. I know the right answers. Knowing the right answers is so different than actually living out the right answers. And sometimes there can be a temptation to kind of confuse those two things, to think, well, I know it all. My life's good. I'm living for Jesus. But this is where we have to self-evaluate and say, do I know the right answers, but am I actually living them out? The good Samaritan, he puts love into action. He sees the man and he has compassion for him in his heart. But it doesn't just stay there in his heart. He actually moves towards him and loves him. And this is actually something Jesus modeled himself In John chapter 4, Jesus interacts with a Samaritan. There's a Samaritan woman at the well. And this would have been like the cultural taboo of all taboos. Like Jesus as a male teacher, Jewish male teacher, uh, interacting with this Samaritan woman would have been like big, like that would not have happened. And yet she's in need. She's hurting. She's broken. And Jesus moves towards her. He puts love into action. And so if we want to be good neighbors, if, we're, if you're here today and you're a Christian and your life, you've been saved and your life is marked by love for God and other people, how do we do this neighborly thing? Well, we got to self-evaluate. We got to look beyond our differences and then we got to just do it. We got to put it into action. And this doesn't mean we can meet every single need that pops up. It doesn't mean we have to like, play savior on our street and, and do that. Like we can't do that. Only Jesus is the savior. Think about this. Jesus came and he walked on earth. And when Jesus left, were there still hurting people? Yeah. Were there still sick people? Yeah. But when Jesus interacted with people who were in need, he met them where they're at. You know, this whole talk about being a neighbor isn't just about who we share a fence with. 
It's about the people we interact with. The Samaritan would not have been a neighbor to this Jewish man. But as his life is moving along down this road, he passes him, he sees a need, and he meets a need. He puts love into action. So I'm going to invite the band up. Uh, There's one prompt I want us to just end our time with today because I want us to think about this this week. And uh, as the band's coming up, I want us to start thinking about this. This week, I will seek to put love into action by... You put in the answer. You fill in the blank. Maybe there's a specific person that comes to mind that's like, you know what? I really struggle to love this person. Maybe it is someone you share a fence with. Maybe they constantly are just, they're that a neighbor that's like, ugh. You feel like, like Mr. Crank who's just so annoyed by his neighbors. I don't know. Maybe it's someone at your work or a family member. I don't know who it is for you, but maybe there's a specific person. Maybe this is just as simple as, you know what, there's this type of person and whenever I see them, I react in this hostile way. I kind of tense up. I don't, I don't look at them. I don't speak to them because they're different from me. Maybe it's as simple as, hey, when I see this person, I'm going to humanize them. I'm going to say hi to them. I'll ask them how they're doing. I'll get to see them as a person. I don't know what it is for you, but the expert of the law, he knew the right answers, but he didn't put them in to practice. It's like when you go for your driver's test and you ace the written part of the exam, but then you immediately fail the parallel parking part. The expert in the law, he aced the written exam, but he failed the parallel parking. What about us? Let's put love into action this week. I want you to take just 30 seconds to a minute and actually think about this. Maybe pull out your phone, text this to yourself this week. I'll seek to put love into action by, or write it down. Text it to your spouse or a friend. Take 30 seconds, just think about this, and then I'll pray and close us out. Lord Jesus, thank you that the things you call us to, you didn't just tell us to do, you actually showed us. You were the first good neighbor. You came to a world of people who turned their back on you. You came to a world of people who were different from you. You came to a world of hostility. And Lord, rather than just giving up on us, you loved us. Lord, what can we do but turn around and say, we love you, Lord Jesus. I want to love others too. I pray and ask that you will help us as individuals and as a church family to be people marked by love. People who choose to self-evaluate, people who choose to look beyond differences, never compromising truth, but always choosing to dish out that truth first with love. I pray and ask that you be with us this week. Help us to put this love into action. Amen.